church family, if you've got your Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn it, it to the very last chapter of the book of Acts. Well, we're there. It's been a journey. If you're new to us, we've been walking through the book of Acts for know, a handful of weeks, I guess. But we're at the end of this journey. Two more weeks, this week and next week, and then we'll dive into the book of Jonah. I'm excited about that and what God will teach us about obedience to the mission. This morning, we're going to be in the first 16 verses of chapter 28. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever had a season of life where it seemed like it was one challenge after another? One disappointment, one discouragement followed by more of the same. You ever had a season of life like that? Maybe, maybe they all weren't storms, like chapter 27, and Paul and the storm at sea. Maybe they all weren't storms, but they were discouragements and frustrations and disappointments, and it just went on and on. 2010 was a year that for Susan and I, we were glad it was over when it was over. It was one of those years for us. It was one thing after another. To begin with, uh, the church, this church back in that day, um, had to leave where it was meeting, our beautiful and illustrious portable buildings that are right next door to us now. But they were our home. They were where we gathered. And we had to go to a school and began doing mobile church. And so that came with its own set of challenges. Two months into that, my family and I were on a vacation. And on the very first day of that vacation, we get a call that Susan's father had passed away. So we return and deal with the challenges of that. A month later, we try to get away again, and we go to a friend's lake house, and while we're there, I get the call that one of our staff members has physically assaulted another staff member. They're not here. Bob didn't hit Jonathan. <laughs> but had to come back from that, and deal with that and the fallout that came from that. A month after that, I'm preaching through the book of Titus, and I spend 15 minutes in that sermon explaining what I believe the words elect exiles means, and as a result of that, over the next three months, nine families leave our church, and we weren't a church anywhere near our size at that point because of my view of predestination. It was one challenge after another. That was one New Year's Eve that Susan and I celebrated like no other. <laughs> Goodbye to 2010. Have you ever had a season of life like that? One challenge, one disappointment, one source of discouragement after another. It feels like you go from the frying pan into the fire and into the boiling pot of hot water. Well, that's where we find Paul here at the end of Acts. 
he's having one of those seasons. He's been incarcerated for two and a half years for no reason, no good reason at least. Finally, he appeals to Caesar and he is shipped off to Rome, as was his right as a Roman citizen, and so they ship him off to Rome. And while he's on that journey, the Lord sends a a massive storm where he's tossed and turned for 14 days. And then he shipwrecks. He shipwrecks on an island. And as we'll see in this morning's passage, no sooner does he pull himself ashore than a snake bites him. I would have been like, Really? This is what I get for defending you before the Jews in Jerusalem and the Romans in Caesarea? Really, Lord? But not Paul. Shipwrecked and snake bit, Paul responds to this season of trial in three ways. He trusts God, he looks for ways to serve God, and he seeks to be encouraged by fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. Let's read about Paul's season of life here and seek to learn from him how we can respond when the Lord sends us into a season of trial and discouragement. This is God's word, Acts 28, verses 1 through 16. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened to his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead, but when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail... They put us on board. They put on board whatever we needed. About after three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God 
and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege already this morning of worshiping you, coming to your son's table to take of his body and blood. And now, Father, we come to your word. We ask that you'd speak to us. We ask that you'd keep us in a spirit of worship as we read and study and look at your word. Father, our prayer is that we'd walk away not more knowledgeable about what happens here, but Lord, that we would be changed as a result of what you teach us. And so we ask that you would attend to the reading of your word with your Holy Spirit to drive these principles deep into our heart, Father, so that you would be glorified by a church that walks faithfully through seasons of trial. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week... And I didn't have to rely on the Savills. I got my own little pointer this week. Uh, but last week, we left off, where is it? There it is. No, it's not. What happened? Ah, there it is. All right, so we're in Caesarea. And they left and went to Sidon. They went around the Lee of Cyprus. And we're told that they went this way. Instead of going straight to Rome... They went around the Lee of Cyprus because there was an annoying headwind that made them go a different route. Uh, they got to Myra, changed ships, they continued westward, and when they got to Sinaitis, they could go no further. That annoying headwind had become a strong headwind, such that they could go no further west. And so they headed south under the Lee of Crete and landed in Fair Havens, but instead of stay, staying the winter there, they made the faithful decision to continue westward, where they were driven off course in risk of running into the, the shallows of Sirtis here off the coast of North Africa. And the storm tossed them and turned them for 14 days in the middle of the Mediterranean. And by God's provision, they landed on this tiny little island in the middle of the sea. And we learn in this morning's passage in chapter 28 that this island is called Malta. Now, the word Malta means honey or honey sweet. And while the natives of that island were sweet enough, the snakes were not. And a viper, a venomous snake, we're told, fastens to his hand, bites him. So he goes from unjust incarceration to a storm at sea to shipwreck to snake bit. It's been a season for Paul. But there's a threefold theme that we see throughout these verses that, are, that will help to put together for us how we can respond to seasons of trial and seasons of suffering in our lives. First, we see very plainly the theme of God's sovereignty. That through all of this, God's in control. He's got a plan. And our role is to trust Him in that. Secondly, we see the theme of Paul serving God no matter what the circumstances are. No matter if he's in prison or in a storm, shipwrecked, snake bit, he looks for ways to serve God and takes advantage of those opportunities to serve God, even in the most challenging seasons of his life. Thirdly, 
we see the theme of Paul being encouraged by fellow brothers in the Lord in these times of challenge. And so Paul teaches us that the best way for us to respond when we have these seasons where we feel like we're going from the frying pan into the fire and then into the pot of boiling water, the best way for us to respond is to trust God, to serve Him, to look for a way to serve Him, and to seek to be encouraged by fellow believers in the Lord. We can divide our passage into three sections. The first few passages are about Paul getting bit by a snake on Malta and miraculously surviving. That then leads to a healing ministry on the island of Malta where he heals many people. And then finally, the last section is this final leg of the journey to Rome where Paul is encouraged by many brothers who travel from far away just to spend time with him and be with him. So let's walk through these sections and, and I want us to keep our our eyes open for those themes of trusting God, serving God, and being encouraged by others. And we don't have to get very far before we begin to see some of these themes pop out to us. Verse 1 opens with, after we were brought safely through, which is a subtle nod, if you see that, of God's providential care of Paul. It doesn't say, after we successfully sailed ourselves to Malta. It doesn't say, after we just happened to land on this island in the middle of the Mediterranean. No, Luke recognizes this was God's providential hand of sovereignty bringing them safely through. He was brought safely through. Luke tells us that the natives were unusually kind and they welcomed us and they built a fire. But although they built the fire, what do we see Paul doing? Is he sitting back just letting others serve him? No. No, he is rolling up his sleeves, gathering sticks, helping, pitching in. He's serving, he's doing his part. No matter what situation, we'll see this, no matter what situation we find Paul in, no matter how challenging or discouraging or disappointing the situations are in which, he, in which he finds himself, he's always looking for opportunities to serve God. And here is no different. He gathers sticks along with everyone else. What a great example for us. Example of humility and sacrifice in serving others. Jesus was the same way. Jesus writes of himself in Mark 10, verse 45, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul will write when he gets to Rome and he's in prison, he will write to the church at Philippi and he'll write this about Jesus in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, he was God. 
But but he did not demand all of the rights and privileges of God, but rather, verse 7, he emptied himself. In other words, he voluntarily laid aside some of the rights and privileges of being God and taking the form of what? A servant. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being com- becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, this perspective, this, this outlook, this demeanor. Ha- have it among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In other words, because of Jesus' humility, because of his sacrificial serving us by going to the cross and dying in our place, we ought also to have humility and sacrificially serve others. And that's what Paul does here. He doesn't pridefully expect others just to serve him. And neither does he, conversely, neither does he just wallow in self-pity. Oh, woe is me. No, he rolls up his sleeves. He looks for an opportunity to serve and he pitches in and he gathers up sticks and puts them in the fire. But as he does so, what happens? A snake who had been drawn to the warmth of the fire bites him on the hand. And this was no harmless garden snake. This was a, a, a venomous snake. This was, and we know it was venomous not only because it was called a viper, and vipers are venomous, but also because of how the natives react here. What do they say in verse 4? No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Two things that we learn from their statement there. First, that these are, this is a pagan people with a very pagan worldview that they're operating from here. Their worldview is something much akin to perhaps our modern day understanding of karma. If I'm bad, bad things are going to happen to me. If I'm good, good things are going to happen to me. And that, that statement, justice has not allowed him to live, the word justice there in your English translation, translations is probably capitalized, and that's because scholars believe that this was a reference to the Greek goddess D.K., that's the word in Greek, D.K., and that was the name of a goddess, the goddess of justice. So very pagan, very polytheistic worldview. But secondly, we learn from the statement that they fully expected Paul to die from this. Like at any moment, we're told that they, they, they wait. They wait to see him keel over and die. They're expecting him to die as a result of this. Why? Because they knew that this would be a venomous snake. And that's what happened to everybody else who was bitten by this kind of snake. But Paul's expectations are different. He, he's, he's, he's not worried. He's not even phased by the snake. I think most of us would at least be alarmed to begin with. But he's not. His reaction in verse 5, he, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. It's like, oh, look, a snake. Don't want that. Shakes it off into the fire. No big deal. No harm done. What's going on in Paul's mind here? Well, remember what Jesus had told him two and a half years prior to this? After he had been arrested in the temple, And they took him into the barracks. Jesus showed up to him that night. And he said, Paul, just as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, 
so you must also testify about me in Rome. It's a promise. Paul, you're going to go to Rome. Where is he now? Malta. When he's on the ship in the middle of the storm, he tells the sailors that that night an angel had appeared to him in the bows of the ship. And that angel told him, Paul, not only you, but all of your shipmates, you're going to make it through this storm. Why? Because you are going to stand before Caesar. Who's he standing before now? The natives of Malta. Paul's not yet in Rome. Paul's not yet standing before Caesar. And so he looks down at that snake fastened to his hand as if to say, if my God, who has promised that I'm going to go to Rome, can ensure that a storm and a shipwreck won't get in the way, what do you think you're going to do? And he shakes him off into the fire. Paul doesn't give in to fear. He's not overcome by anxiety. He doesn't get frustrated. You would think that he would at least be frustrated. Incarcerated, shipwrecked, snake bit. But he's not frustrated. He's not disappointed, discouraged. He just flicks that viper, that source of potential fear, stress, worry, disappointment, discouragement, disappointment. He flicks it into the fire. There's something for us to learn from this. And that is that the antidote to fear, anxiety, worry, stress, disappointment, dis discouragement, frustration, the antidote to all of that is a solid and growing trust in the sovereignty of God. Because see, if we're really trusting God, if we're growing in our trust of our maker, our creator, our father, then these sources of major discouragement, major disappointment, major frustration will become minor inconveniences. God had given Paul a promise. You're going to Rome because I'm going to get the gospel to the nations and my means of doing so is by getting you to Rome, Paul. That was his promise. And although Paul didn't know how, he didn't know when, he knew it was going to happen. He trusted that God was in control and he knew what was going on and that his plan was good and his promise would be fulfilled. God's promise to us is not that we will not suffer harm from snake bites, right? If people, people read this and walk away from that kind of interpretation have missed the entire point of this passage. God is not promising us that we will not be harmed by snake bites or suffer discouragement as a result of circumstances. His promise to us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our only hope to be rescued from the judgment and punishment we deserve because of our rebellion against him. We who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, he will keep us to the end. He'll not let us go. And no matter what we walk through in life, we don't walk through it alone. He's with us, whether it's in the bowel of the ship or in the cell of a prison. He walks through that with us, and he will ensure that we get home. Whether he takes us there or he comes back and sets up the new heavens and the new earth, and he reigns with us. That's the promise. And church, the more that we can trust and hold on to his sovereignty in that promise, 
These sources of what might otherwise be major discouragement and frustration and worry and, and, and anxiety will become minor inconveniences along the way to his fulfilled sovereignty and plan. But note that trusting in God's sovereignty is not about letting go and letting God. He doesn't just resign himself. Oh, I guess, I guess God's will is for me to have a snake handing, hanging from my arm. No, he shakes it off into the fire. Just as they did when they were in the middle of the storm. They just didn't sit back on the deck and say, okay, I guess God's will is for us to head for the shallows of Sirtis and, and, and be shipwrecked off the coast of North Africa. They didn't do that. We saw last week that they worked hard to undergird the ship. They worked hard to, to put out the sea anchor and to jettison the extra cargo so that they would weather the storm. They didn't just sit back and do nothing on the sofa and, and just let go and let God. So this is not about not helping ourselves, not planning for the future. Rather, it is trusting that whatever happens, God's in control. And that he's going to work all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. And that he works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. And so it's trusting that he's sovereign, that, he, that he's working things out according to his sovereign plan, which is always for our good and his glory. Do we trust him in that way? Trusting in God's sovereignty also means trusting that he's got a purpose He's got a reason for those trials. And we usually don't know what those reasons are. We rarely know what those reasons are, just like Paul. He, he may have trusted that God was going to ensure that he wouldn't die from the storm or the shipwreck or the snake bite and that he was going to make it to Rome. He trusted that God was going to get him to Rome. But he had to run, wonder, God, why though? Why, why the snake? What, what, what is the, what's the role of the snake bite in your grand plan of me going to Rome? What's, what's the point, God? I think there are perhaps two pur purposes for this snake bite that we can see from this text. The first is to teach the people there something about Paul's God. Their immediate reaction to Paul surviving the snake bite is to conclude that Paul was a god. And although we don't see it from the text here, we know enough about Paul at this point to know that it didn't take him long to say, no, 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 I, I, I'm not a god. But you're right about one thing. Only God has the power over storms and snakes. So let me tell you about the one that I serve. You see, sometimes... God leads us through trials in our lives to teach us and others around us something about who he is. Perhaps God intends to use your journey of suffering and trial in order to teach those and those in your spheres of influence that God is good, that he is faithful that his mercies never end, and that his steadfast love is better than life itself. You see, it's in the crucible of suffering and trial that we learn the most about who God is. And those are lessons that we don't learn in a classroom. 
Second purpose for this snake bite for Paul is to open up our opportunities for him to serve. Because Paul is so revered because of what happened with this snake, this leads to opportunities to serve many other people on the island. He gets an invite to the chief man of the island, Publius. And while there, he heals Publius's father of fever and dysentery. And then the word gets out. And we're told in verse 9 that the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. You see, God sometimes uses our pain, our hurts, our seasons of trial and suffering to open up opportunities to serve him. And I've seen that so many times. God leads someone through a season of trial. And then he providentially brings somebody else into their life who is challenged with the same exact thing. And they're able to walk through that together. And so be ready, brother, sister. Be ready. If God has you in a season of trial, a season of suffering and difficulty, where you're going from shipwrecked to snake bit, don't be surprised if he uses that. And he brings somebody else into your, into your life and gives you an opportunity to walk alongside someone else who is going through a season of trial. And by the way, I think it's noteworthy here that, that after all that Paul has endured here, he still looks for and takes advantage of opportunities to serve. If it were me, I probably wouldn't have. I, I probably would have said, forget it. I mean, I'm just a prisoner. See these chains? I'm just a prisoner. I've been falsely accused, wrongly imprisoned, storm-tossed, shipwrecked, snake-bit. Go heal your own people. It's not my job, not my responsibility, but not Paul. No matter the circumstances, no matter what situation he finds himself, no matter how challenging the situation is, He's always looking for and taking advantage of opportunities to serve God by serving others. And what does this serving opportunity ultimately lead to? Verse 10, they also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. So Paul's selfless sacrifice and service ends up being God's means of providential provision for him. He was saved from the shipwreck. He was saved from the viper's venom, but he still doesn't have any provisions for the rest of their journey because they're not there yet. They threw all their provisions into the water during the storm to try to stay afloat. It was gone. But as a result of this serving opportunity that God providentially gives him, and as a result of Paul faithfully taking advantage of this serving opportunity, the people greatly honor them and then when they set sail for Malta in three months' time after the winter, they find a ship full of provisions to be able to make it the rest of the journey home. Now, Paul didn't serve them so that this would happen. He, he didn't serve them so that you'll give me provisions. He served because, as we said earlier, he was a servant. That was his identity. That's who he was, as it should be our identity as well. But his selfless service to the people on Malta became the means for their provision through their gratefulness. And here's the thing. 
Paul couldn't come up with this plan if he had tried to. Much less, much less pulled it off. This was clearly God sovereignly working. God shipwrecks them on this specific tiny island in the vast expanse of the Mediterranean Sea. That storm just happened to make them land there. And then God brought a snake to bite them on the hand so that it would lead to fruitful ministry with the islanders who then in turn would reciprocate and give Paul and his companions all that they needed in order to fulfill God's ultimate purpose, which is to get him to Rome so he would get the gospel to the nations. Even more evidence here to show Paul and to show us, church, that God was sovereignly working through all of this. This has got his thumbprints all throughout it. And Paul's job was simply to trust that God was at work no matter how challenging the circumstances became. In the closing five verses of our passage, we see this final leg of this long journey to Rome. After they winter in, Alex, uh, in uh, Malta, after they winter in Malta, they set off, they land in Syracuse, they spend three days, they go to Regium, the toe of Italy, spend a day there, and then a southern wind comes up and they make it all the way up to Puteoli, where they disembark. And then they travel the Appian Way, this famous highway from Naples up to Rome, which is up there somewhere. And in Puteoli, we're told that they find brothers. This means Christian brothers. It means fellow believers. And they stay with them for seven days. Why seven days? Well, so that they would have the privilege and the honor and the blessing of gathering with God's people in those seven days. Can you imagine how much of an encouragement this must have been to Paul? Remember how we felt when we came back from the pandemic? And how grateful we were to be gathering with the saints again? And that had just been a few weeks for Paul. Between two and a half to three years, he had not gathered with the saints. What an encouragement. How greatly he must have needed that encouragement at this point in his life. And Luke writes at the end of verse 14, And so we came to Rome. And then the encouragement that started with the brothers in Puteoli only grew when he arrives in Rome. And Luke writes in verse 15, And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. The Forum of Appius was about 43 miles from Rome, which is like from here to the Atlanta airport. The three taverns was about 30 miles, so that's like from here to Sanford Stadium in Athens. And these brothers walked. They walked miles, days. It, it, it was two days to the three taverns. It was a three-day walk to the Forum of Appius. And they walked for days to see and be with Paul. And Luke writes at the, at the end of verse 15, on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. He thanked God because God is the one who brought them safely through the storm and through the shipwreck and through the snake bite to now be in Rome. 
He thanked God because he knew that God had been sovereign over this entire journey. And he had been sovereign over this season of trial and discouragement. He thanked God because God had been with him the entire way and had never left him. And he thanked God because God had now graciously brought to him these Christian brothers to encourage him. God had done this, and so he thanked God, and then he took courage. He took courage. Note what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that Paul was encouraged. As if Paul was just a passive recipient of courage. No, Paul had a role here. This is an active verb. He took courage. He had a role in his own encouragement here. He took it. In other words, he recognized his need for encouragement. And he saw these brothers as God's sovereign provision for his need for encouragement. And he allowed himself to be encouraged by them. Some of us have a tendency, myself included if I'm being transparent, that when we're discouraged, we tend to drift away from Christian fellowship and biblical community and drift towards isolation and independence. Now, if you're an extrovert in the room, you can just ignore this for a second because you probably can't relate. But for my fellow introverts, you know what I mean. When we're discouraged, we're already drained. And being around people just drains us more. And so for us, when we're enduring seasons of difficulty and trial, snake bit, shipwrecked, we're going to need to do something counterintuitive. Our flesh is going to want to drift away from the body of Christ. Our sin nature is going to want to drift towards isolation and independence, but we must put to death the flesh and instead lean into community and, like Paul, take courage from our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And what a display of Christian love on the part of these brothers who traveled from so far away, two to three days walking distance, simply to bring encouragement to another brother. So not only do we need to take courage from one another, but we need to be willing to make the sacrifices that are necessary in order for us to be able to give and offer encouragement to others. Paul will write in 1 Thessalonians 5, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as in fact you are doing. You're doing it, but keep doing it. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then how does our passage end? Verse 16, so when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. And so this is a helpful reminder to us here that Paul's still a prisoner. He's still a prisoner. Incredibly, in God's kind providence, he's given the right to be able to stay in a house so that his Christian brothers can visit him and minister to him. But he still doesn't have freedom. 
He's in a house, but he's under house arrest. And he's chained to a guard. And so this season of trial, it isn't over. It, it continues. And what does Paul do? He trusts God. He seeks to be encouraged by fellow brothers in the Lord. And he looks for opportunities to serve God. Well, he's, he's under house arrest. He's chained to a guard. What, what, what possible way could he serve God in this condition? Well, we know the rest of the story, don't we? Because we have the rest of the New Testament. While he's in prison there in Rome, he'll write a letter to the church at Ephesus to encourage the believers there to grow in their knowledge of God and their knowledge of the church. And then he'll sit down and he'll write another letter to the church at Philippi. He'll thank them for the gift that they gave. He'll remind them no matter what happens, no matter how hard it gets, we have joy in Christ. Then he'll sit down and write another letter to the church at Colossae where he'll correct some false teachers who had begun to infiltrate that church. So he's, he's, he's trying to help that church by guarding that church, guarding the doctrine. Then he'll write another letter to a friend named Philemon about a former slave and a mutual brother that they have in Onesimus. So what does he do to serve? He writes prolifically and he preaches. He preaches Christ. He preaches the gospel even to the guard that he's chained to. Can't you just imagine that guard that's chained to Paul? Hey, buddy, look at us. We're stuck here. Not going to go anywhere. Let me tell you about a trip I took to Damascus one day. And he shares Christ with the guard. In his letter that he's going to write while he's in prison to the church at Philippi, he'll write this. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, and what was that? Prison. Chained to a guard. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Imagine him. He's writing those words while he's chained to the guard. No matter what situation Paul found himself in, he knew his identity was that of a servant. And so God, what... what what opportunities do you have for me to serve you even here? It didn't matter if he was in prison in Caesarea on a ship in the middle of a storm, shipwrecked on an island, snake bit, or chained to a Roman guard. He looked for opportunities to serve him. And so our application of this passage should be clear at this point. When we find ourselves in seasons of trial, we need to learn to trust God Look for opportunities to serve God. And we need to seek to be, allow ourselves to be encouraged by fellow believers. So in what way do you need to learn to trust God more? What does that look like in your life? What actions and behaviors and thoughts on your part betray the fact that you're in fact not trusting God, but rather perhaps trusting in something else? 
How can you grow to trust in God's plan over your plan? Secondly, as you find yourself in seasons of trial and difficulty, one of the best things that we can do is look for ways to serve him. What are ways that you can serve God? Whether it's serving in the church, serving your family, serving your neighbors, serving people perhaps like Paul served the guard to whom he was chained by holding out the gospel to them, the hope of forgiveness and grace that's found in Christ alone. And then finally, how can you grow in both taking and giving encouragement? You know, sometimes I think the best encouragement we can be is just to be present. I think perhaps from day's journey away and nothing is said about what they tell him. They're just present in his life. They're with him and he takes encouragement from that. What are some ways that you can take and give encouragement to other brothers and sisters in Christ? And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus yet, you've not yet trusted in Christ as your only hope to be forgiven of your sin and rescued from the judgment that we all deserve because of a rebellion against God. You've not yet professed faith in Christ. If that's you, then be reminded this morning of what Christ did to serve you in his humility and his willingness to sacrifice himself. He served you at Calvary. As we read earlier from Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Friend, he paid that ransom. He paid it in full when he died on the cross of Calvary to purchase the redemption of sinners, to save sinners from what they deserve. Friend, will you spurn that act of service and keep trying to earn the right to be with God in this life and the next? Or will you see the folly of that impossibility and take courage this morning from what Jesus Christ did for you. Turn from your sin and believe on Christ and be rescued and be remade into a worshiper who is on a journey to glory just like Paul is on his journey to Rome. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the reminder this passage is for how when we find ourselves in seasons of our lives that seem to be just one discouragement, one challenge after another, we can trust that you're still on your throne, that even this somehow, some way fits into your sovereign plan, and that your plan is always for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so help us to trust you more. Help us to be like the father of the demon-possessed man in Mark 9 who said, I believe, but help my unbelief. Lord, help us to trust you more fully, more completely so that those sources of discouragement simply become minor inconveniences on the road to your will. And Lord, keep our eyes open, not so inwardly focused in self-pity or pride, but rather outward focused 
to see that we're here to serve you by serving others. Keep our eyes open and give us the faith and the strength to keep putting our hand to the plow and serving the people that you've put around us and hold out the gospel to them as you did to us. And Father, we're just so thankful as we think about the ways in which you have brought fellow believers into our lives at just the right moment. And I look out, Father, on this faith family and see the faces of those who met me in my deepest points of discouragement and disappointment and were present. And our union in Christ, our being united in the gospel, our mutual hope was such a source of encouragement to me. Father, help us to see our responsibility to both offer encouragement and to be willing to allow others to encourage us. You've placed that need in us for others. And so help us to live up to that in faith. Father, we want to do this because we want to see you glorified. And Father, we can only do this. We can only trust you. We can only serve you. We can only seek to be encouraged by one another. We can only continue on this journey through Christ who is in us. And so we thank you for your abiding strength in us through your spirit. Help us to lean on that reservoir of strength and not our own as you bring us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.